Hello and welcome to episode one of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And we invite you to join us as we explore the post-crisis legacy of Batman and Robin as told in the pages of Batman and Detective Comics and eventually other books like Legends of the Dark Knight, Shadow of the Bat, and Batman-centric original graphic novels. If you don't know what the term post-crisis means, we will explain that for you a little bit later in the show. But first, who are we, and why are we talking about Batman? As I said at the top, my name is Ryan, and I host several podcasts on the Fire & Water Podcast Network, the same network that hosts this show. Among my current projects are Midnight the Podcasting Hour, which looks at several of DC's horror comics and supernatural superheroes. Also, Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast, and Give Me Those Star Wars. I also used to host the show called Secret Origins Podcast that finally wrapped up in the fall of 2016. Greetings, citizens. My name is Chris Franklin. You might remember me from such podcasts as Supermates, the Husband and Wife Geek Cast, which I co-host with my wife, Cindy, and the Power Records Podcast, hosted by myself and Fire & Water co-poobah, Rob Kelly. If you listen to the final episode of Secret Origins, the coda, Chris and I talked about a Batman story called The Man Who Falls. It was sort of a revised version of Batman's classic origin story to be more in keeping with the story points told in the late 1980s. That segment of the coda was sort of the preview of Batman Nightcast, sort of our episode zero. On that episode, we talked a little bit about how the show came to be. This podcast has been in development for over a year. Chris was my guest on episode 6 of Secret Origins, where we talked about the origin of the Golden Age Batman. During the preparation for that episode, I found myself revisiting some of my favorite Batman comics, most of which I hadn't looked at in about 10 years. And in doing so, I was reminded why Batman has always been my favorite superhero. I wanted to do a Batman podcast, but there was just so much Batman material to cover that I needed a focus on a specific subset of Batman comics or a specific era. The Batman Universe Podcast Network covers the modern era and a lot of satellite Batman books, and Michael Bailey's Batman podcast used to cover a lot of the Jerry Conway era. I'll admit for a little while I considered focusing on the Batman team-ups from The Brave and the Bold, but two things stopped me. First, the format of the team-up book featuring the ever-changing roster of guest characters would, inevitably, have led me down the rabbit hole of getting a new guest host for every episode like I did on Secret Origins. And while I like that format, while I love talking to a lot of different people about their favorite comic book characters, I just couldn't do that right after Secret Origins podcast. I would have burned out before Neil Adams redesigned Green Arrow's costume. The second and more important reason I decided to focus on the late 1980s, early 1990s era is the all-important nostalgia factor. Our mantra here on the Fire & Water Network, the philosophy we try to adhere to is, find your joy. For me, the post-crisis Batman era is not only my joy, it's my foundation. The first Batman stories I read were in trades and graphic novels in 1989, right after the movie came out. The first individual issues I read came out in 1990, and I started collecting Batman and Detective Comics at the local Eagle grocery store, about three blocks from my house. These were the first books that I collected every month, and a year later when I found a comic book store, I started getting back issues from that time right before my collecting began. Now, of course, just because I love these particular Batman comics, that does not mean they're automatically good material for a podcast. 
Luckily, this was a fascinating and turbulent time period for the Dark Knight. If you're not familiar with Batman in the comics, if you only know him from other media, you may have two vastly different ideas about who Batman is and how he's portrayed. In the Batman television show from the 1960s, Batman was something of a carefree, kid-friendly adventurer. He was friendly with the cops and the general public. Hell, he was practically a deputy in a cape and cowl. On the other hand, in the recent big-screen films directed by Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder, Batman is a brooding, psychologically damaged urban vigilante. And the thing is, they're both pretty faithful to the source material of their time. The path from friendly superhero to grimdark Avenger did not happen overnight. Those who would blame Frank Miller for turning Batman into an insufferable sociopath in 1986 fail to see that Batman's serious turn began more than a decade prior. However, I would contend that the best place to see this shift over a limited period of time is the era between Legends, a DC miniseries event in 1986, and the Nightfall saga from 1993 to 1995, and that's the era we are aiming to cover on this show. Once I knew that, I knew I needed a co-host, and it took all of a minute to remember how much I like talking about Batman with Chris Franklin, and that's why I asked him to co-host the show with me. That's how and why the show came together. And that's what this era of Batman comics means to me. But, Chris, what about you? What does this era mean for you? Well, this was my Batman phase that Shag talks about. I, I just – this was the only time I really read Batman, you know. So No, I'm kidding. Uh, this, <laughs> I was going to say, wait a minute. <laughs> so this phase of Batman – this phase of Batman's published career – it's very important to me because I was just about to enter my teen years as this era began, and I was a Batman fan straight from the womb, it seems. I mean, I had Batman merchandise and comics bought for me from around age two onward, at least. Uh, even as a wee lad, I noticed the differences between the Batman I was watching on TV, like Adam West and the Super Friends and the Filmation cartoons, and the one in the comics. You know, he had longer ears in the comics. He had a grimmer disposition he was in the shadows a lot he was scarier looking and usually he didn't have robin with him because he was off at college so this opened me up to accepting just about any iteration of batman that came my way and as we'll see from our coverage of this era the mid to late 80s is perhaps the most schizophrenic period of batman's history because dc was really struggling to figure out just who the new post-crisis batman was going to be yeah I mentioned that this part of Batman's history, at least where we are starting, is called the post-crisis era. And for those of you listening, if you don't know what that means, it refers to the time after the publication of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was a 12-issue series published in 1985 that radically changed the DC Universe. Now, your grasp of the crisis and its fallout is a lot firmer than mine, Chris, since I wasn't reading the comics at that time. What was the crisis? What were the effects? How did it change characters who had been around since the 1930s and 1940s? I feel like you, there should be some music going, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> the crisis and you, you know. No. Uh, basically, the crisis started out as an idea to simplify what some deemed to be a confusing continuity at DC Comics. Since the Silver Age of the 1960s, a key component of the DC mythology had been the parallel Earths concept. Characters from the Golden Age of the 30s through the early 50s 
were said to have operated on a world that DC earmarked Earth 2 for some strange reason. This included the earliest versions of DC's top three heroes, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the members of the Justice Society of America, which was the first comic book superhero team. Most of DC's then-currently running titles, as of the 1980s, took place on Earth-1 and featured younger versions of DC's Holy Trinity, as well as unique versions of Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Adam, etc. And the premier hero team that those characters belonged to on this Earth was the Justice League of America. There were additional parallel Earths that contained heroes DC had acquired from once-rival publishers as well, like Captain Marvel on Earth-S and the quality comics characters on Earth-X. Writer and editor Marv Wolfman believed this concept was too confusing for new readers, and a streamlining would help DC grab fans from Marvel, who had become the top comic publisher a decade earlier. Since Wolfman was the co-creator of DC's top-selling book of the 1980s, The New Teen Titans, the DC higher-ups agreed, and along with his Titans collaborator George Perez, he crafted a cosmos-spanning 12-issue maxi-series that basically collapsed the multiple dimensions into a new single universe. Some, such as myself argue that despite the excellence of the Crisis series, it robbed DC of its most unique attribute among comic publishers. But the fresh start did exactly what Wolfman and DC had hoped. It increased sales and goosed reader excitement greatly. A light switch was not flipped at the end of Crisis number 12, however. In fact, most titles still reflected the pre-Crisis continuity for many months while creative teams pitched springboards for fresh starts. Sales on Superman and Wonder Woman titles had been floundering for years, and a drastic restart for each was deemed necessary. Comics' top talents were brought on board to hit those reset buttons, with John Byrne lured away from Marvel to launch a brand new Superman and the Man of Steel miniseries, while George Perez followed up Crisis by reimagining Wonder Woman and a renumbered title. Compared to these two, Batman had a much softer and very gradual reboot. His editor of several years, Lynn Wein, who'd also edited Crisis, stepped aside for the arrival of Denny O'Neill, the scribe of many of the characters' greatest stories of the 1970s. As O'Neill set up shop, the most influential story in the character's history was wrapping up. The final issue of Frank Miller's four-part epic miniseries, Batman The Dark Knight, shipped a mere month before Batman number 400, which was the last story edited by Lynn Wein and written by Doug Minch, who had written both Batman and Detective Comics since June of 1983. Minch continued the ongoing serial nature of the Bat books begun by previous writer Jerry Conway. Conway had introduced a new ward for Batman and Jason Todd, and under the pen of Minch and Wolfman and Perez over in New Teen Titans, Dick Grayson bequeathed his Robin role onto Jason. And yes, he just gave it to him, folks. There was no firing. There was no... We'll get to that later. But it was just an amicable split, okay? Uh, Minch's approach was even more soap operatic than Conway before him focusing on Bruce Wayne's love life with Vicki Vale, Julia Pennyworth, the daughter of Alfred, Catwoman, and even the strange villainess Nocturna, who also became a surrogate mother to Jason and tried to adopt him away from Bruce. Mitch became basically obsessed with his Nocturna character and her creepy stepbrother-slash-lover, the night thief, night slayer, and they seemed to dominate many of the storylines in his run. This very human, relatable, and even romantic Batman was in direct opposition to the damaged sociopath, as Ryan pointed out, seen in Miller's Dark Knight. With Crisis freeing creators up to take the characters in new and challenging directions, how would Batman change? Would it be the grim but affable Batman of Mitch's run, or the sardonically twisted and fatalistic Dark Knight from Miller, or something altogether different? And who would O'Neill pick to chart that course? Well, those very important questions are some topics we're going to cover in this series— but first, we need to see how the curtain fell on the pre-crisis Batman. 
There's no doubt about it. Batman number 400 is the hard stop for the Earth-1 Batman, as Minch signposts the new era about to begin with neon bat signals in this story. So that is where this podcast is going to start. Chris and I are going to review Batman 400. But before we do that, we're going to take a break to play some promos for other terrific podcasts you might enjoy. Give them a listen, and when we return, an epic story of Batman, his friends, and his greatest enemies. Don't go away. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right, or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. Thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks... Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. The 400th issue of Batman is cover dated October 1986, but the actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was July 10th, 1986. The 64-page anniversary issue was priced at $1.50. The legendary Bill Sienkiewicz delivered a striking cover that appears on both the front and back of the issue. But it's not a wraparound cover. Instead, they printed it on both sides so that you can see the back cover more or less as an art piece, like a poster, because the front is covered by a lot of text. Why so much text? Well, not only does it say anniversary, and that banner kind of takes up the top chunk of the cover, but there is a murderer's row of artists who contributed to this issue, and they are all listed on the front, as well as a listing for novelist Stephen King, who wrote a foreword to this issue, and we'll talk about that later on. Chris, what do you think of the cover? 
Oh, I love it. It's very near iconic, I think. It's very abstract, but it's a good kind of abstract, and we'll get to good and bad kinds of abstract (laughs) later. Uh, It's extremely moody, and there is a certain finality about it which fits the story because this is really the end of this Batman Mm -hmm. in many ways. It always kind of bothered me that Sienkiewicz's Robin looked more like Dick than Jason, but, you know, that's a minor quibble. Uh, One weird thing that's always bugged me, my copy, the only one I've ever owned, I bought off the stand in 1986, has this odd printing gaff on the front cover. It looks like there's there's a red lipstick mark between the bat's mouth and the moon, and it it looks like it's painted in there, so it's, it's really strange. Uh, it, 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 and I had to flip it over to make sure that wasn't part of the cover, you know. <laughs> so, wow. so thank goodness that was there. Yeah, it, it just uh, occurred to me looking at the cover for the first time in a while while working on this uh, the notes for this episode. The Joker is a few years ahead of Dave McKean's very yes. frightening take from Arkham Asylum. There's some similarities there. It does and, look uh, a lot like that. Yeah, that was my first thought too. Yeah, that that's pretty wild, and and I, I'm just a sucker for the anniversary banner from this period. It's it's it was on a lot of great comics, and you know it had that special gold ink, and it just made it real classy looking. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I like that too. And it's funny because the first time I got this, when I looked it over on the back, I was like, "Oh, that's really cool." You know, it's the the full image. It's not cluttered by the text and everything. You don't. You kind of just get the image sort of pure. But the thing is, like, it really seems like Sienkiewicz designed it with all of that text in mind, because there's mm-hmm. just a ton of empty space. Like, the top quarter mm. of the page is just, like, blue, sort of more or less empty, like, above the bat, like, where the text would be, and, like, the right-hand side where all the names would be. So it's kind of like, you know what? I actually, it's, it's a great piece of art, but I like looking at the front cover more with the names and everything like that. I, I think it kind of feels more authentic, more, more like the, what the cover should be. Uh, and I think just like the placement, the arrangement with the names, with the title, with the text and everything like that to go along with the art because of the way he positioned everything. So I agree. I, DC had a really good, uh, I, I think they had a really classy, just uh, layout design for their covers back then when they would put the credits. I mean, they they were in a really good. I think Ed Hannigan was involved a lot in the. I don't know if he was involved in like the typography and things like that, but he was involved in a lot of the layouts and of the covers at the time. He was kind of the, I guess, the art director more or less. So maybe he had something to do with it. I don't know, but yeah, it, it works a lot better. Because you think if the anniversary banner hadn't been up top, maybe he would have shifted the big bat to be underneath Batman to kind of take the place of the usual Batman logo where it's Batman's cape and his head making the, the bat, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, that's uh, a good point. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really sharp. And you know, back then you didn't see very many painted covers. Now you see one every month, you know, pretty <laughs> much. Uh, there's at least a variant that's a painted cover, but you know, back then did not happen on DC or Marvel comics by the, you know, gold key and, Dell did a lot, but they were pretty much out of out of the picture by then, and never on superhero comics. So, right. and I agree, like the combination of the anniversary banner, the all the titles, like the painted cover, this feels special. This feels like for something for issue four hundred. This feels like an epic, momentous, important cover. And on the mm-hmm. next episode, when we talk about the cover to Batman 401, I'm going to say the opposite. But that will have to wait until the next episode. All, All right. you Magpie fans, just hang on. <laughs> hey, I like me some fishnets, but am I going to say the same thing for Magpie? You're going to have to wait. 
But spoiler alert, no, I don't like Magpie. But anyway, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, Chris, will you start us off taking us through the first part of Batman issue 400? I would be glad to. Resurrection Night was written by Doug Minch, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, who colored like every Batman comic for like 20 years, which is awesome, and edited by Lynn Ween. The title page is actually drawn by John Byrne, and it shows a large, worn windmill dominating the page with the story title spelled out on the windmill blades. Below stand little tiny figures of Batman, Robin, Catwoman, and Talia. In the background are spectral images of the heads of the Joker, Deadshot, Poison Ivy, Killer Croc, Scarecrow, Penguin, Riddler, Mad Hatter, Black Spider, Killer Moth, Dagger, Catman, and the Cavalier. Did you say the Dagger? The Dagger, not not, not Cloak and Dagger. But. <laughs> and also, who's the Dagger? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know, we'll get, we'll get to that. Yeah. Chapter 1 called Trading Darkness. It's illustrated by Steve Lytle and Bruce D. Patterson. On the outskirts of Gotham City, sundown falls upon both Arkham Asylum for the Criminally Insane and the local penitentiary. Inside the domain of madness, the Joker cackles while Black Mask laments his lost lover, Janice. The Mad Hatter, oftentimes near catatonic, is a lively dancing fool. Killer Croc practices his exercise regimen while Clayface 3 stares motionless at a blank wall. At the maximum security prison, 12 miles north, the twisted but sane inmates seem more cognizant of an impending event. The Riddler is frustrated with a riddle book that is beneath his genius, and he grows impatient. The Cavalier paces his cell and wonders if he should go along with the proposed plan. A bored cat man is looking forward to getting back into costume, while Poison Ivy is happy she'll at least be able to see green things growing once more. A gleeful but impatient penguin smiles in eager anticipation. The other inmates, including Calendar Man, Crazy Quilt, Black Spider, and Dagger, are also a mixture of emotions. But they have one in common, hatred. These men and women are seething, waiting to explode. But the explosion comes from without, not within. Simultaneous concussive charges rock both Arkham and the prison, destroying their outer walls. Meanwhile, in the secret bat cave beneath stately Wayne Manor, Batman and the second Robin, Jason Todd, puzzle a note left to them reading, Know Your Foes. The Dark Knight wonders just which foes he should worry about. If he could see the scene taking place several miles away, he would know the answer. All of them. The Joker urges the freed patients of Arkham to head north while the scrambling prison inmates head south. On their way, they notice the flare they were told about, and the two groups of rogues meet in a forested glen. There in the trees hang their costumes and weapons, just as their benefactor had promised. Filled with enthusiasm, these felonious foes feel tonight is the night they will finally defeat their hated enemy on the very anniversary of his Cal debut. Chapter 2, The Master Below, is illustrated by George Perez. In the Batcave, Batman continues to ponder the mysterious note, wondering which foes he is supposed to know and who sent the message. A frustrated Robin heads upstairs hoping Alfred made some sandwiches, while Batman adds another question to the puzzle. Why? Meanwhile, in the woods halfway between Arkham Asylum and Gotham Penitentiary, the greatest rogues gallery of all time assembles in full costume. The villains don't know who sprung them from captivity, only that the mastermind wants them to head west after gathering their gear. 
Two-Face suspects one other fact about their unknown benefactor, that whoever it is, he or she clearly has plans for Batman. The thing about villains, though, is that they rarely do what they're supposed to do. Half of the escaped supercriminals, including Black Mask, Calendar Man, Captain Stingray, Clayface 3, Clue Master, Crazy Quilt, Dr. Phosphorus, Dr. X and Dr. Double X, Mirage, Mr. Freeze, Night Slayer, Signal Man, Tweedledee, and Tweedledum scatter into the woods, deciding that freedom is nicer than taking on Batman again and possibly ending up back in jail. After a coin toss, Two-Face joins them in running away. That leaves the Joker, Dagger, that's the Dagger, Catman, the <laughs> Penguin, Scarecrow, the Riddler, Cavalier, Mad Hatter, Black Spider, Poison Ivy, Killer Moth, Killer Croc, and Deadshot. Joker addresses the group, but Killer Croc has no patience for the Clown Prince's monologues or his leadership. Croc pushes Joker to the ground, declaring his intent to find the mastermind who freed them, and then, as soon as possible, to find Batman and break his back. Back in Wayne Manor, Robin is totally bummed that the mysterious warning has disrupted his and Alfred's plans to celebrate Batman's anniversary. Bruce is in no mood to think about Batman's successes when the note only reminds him of his failures, all the villains he's put behind bars who never seem to stay there, and the precious few who ever reformed. Speaking of which, Joker and the other villains head west until they arrive at the predetermined rendezvous point, a windmill. Once inside, the floor lowers them down a long elevator shaft. Some of them, like Penguin and Catman, are nervous about the deepening mystery, but Joker tells them to relax. Maybe their benefactor will turn out to be something like a James Bond villain. <laughs> in the sub-basement, the villains discover the secret mastermind, sitting in a chair in the dark. He explains the details of his complicated plan, after which the villains all agree to go along with it, some because it appeals to their wanton love of carnage, some because it affords them the chance to get revenge, and some simply for the money. The still-secret mastermind tells them his helicopter will have them in Gotham City in 15 minutes. Chapter 3, First Steps, illustrated by Paris Collins and Larry Malstead. Thirty minutes have passed as Julia Pennyworth enters her downtown Gotham apartment. She pulls back her shower curtain, only to find the scarecrow inside. The master of fear utters a simple, boo, and Julia passes out. Across the bay, Harvey Bullock returns to his home to find a strange plant on his table. Suddenly, it emits a noxious gas, and the slovenly detective is soon entangled in the vines of poison ivy. At Vicki Vale's penthouse apartment, her workout is interrupted by a knock at the door. She finds a note taped to it. Riddle me this. Why did the doorbell refuse to be silent? Before she can even fathom an answer, Vicky is knocked cold by one of her own weights. The Riddler gloats his answer. Because it's not a dumbbell. The Black Spider isn't impressed with the Prince of Puzzlers' cleverness, and he carries Vicky off over his shoulder. The unseen mastermind monitors each of these assaults via video transmission. Chapter 4, The Tempting, is illustrated by Bill Sienkiewicz. Batman is still mulling over the note when a sound catches his attention. It's the sound of fluttering bat wings coming to a sudden stop as one of the Batcave's animal occupants is killed. The dead bat is then thrown at Batman, who sidesteps. A voice from the darkness of the cave calls the dead bat an omen, and then Raish al Ghul reveals himself. Batman thought Raish was dead, but the demon's head explains that he did not die the last time they fought. Raish was severely injured, however, and the Lazarus Pit will not be able to save him many more times. 
Grayish admits to sending the Know Your Foes note to Batman as a warning. He tells Batman that he set all of Batman's enemies free, and to quash any doubt in the detective's mind, the bat phone rings and Commissioner Gordon tells Batman about the explosions at Arkham and the penitentiary, about all the escaped prisoners, and the seven guards who died in the jailbreak. Batman questions the audacity of Rachel Ghoul to show himself in Batman's home after causing the death of seven prison guards. Raish gives his typical spiel, how the world is full of chaos and how his rule would bring about harmony. Harmony, Batman argues, at the expense of freedom. Raish tells Batman that he will help recapture, or even kill, Batman's enemies if the Dark Knight detective agrees to serve him in his quest for world domination. By Raish's way of thinking, with Batman's rogues gallery eliminated, Batman's duty to Gotham would be resolved, freeing him up to help the demon reshape the world. Batman has no interest. He'll recapture them all without Raish's help. He even asks why he shouldn't start by taking Raish al Ghul down right then and there. Raish says he's the only one who knows what Joker and the others are planning to do. And if Batman dies trying to stop them, Raish is the only one who can stop their plan. An enraged Batman rips the top part of his bat computer off and heaves it across the cave. It crashes against the giant penny. Rachel Ghoul leaves with a final word to Batman, a clue, in fact, left by the Riddler. Pinocchio and Jonah's, too. Batman thinks about the clue, deduces Riddler's meaning, and tells Raish to tell the Riddler it's a date, as the imbalanced giant penny falls, slamming to the floor of the cave. Chapter 5, Pinocchio and Jonah's, too, illustrated by Arthur Adams and Terry Austin. Robin returns to the Batcave to find his mentor heading toward the Batmobile. The boy wonder drops his Alfred-made sandwiches as he leaps into the high-powered car. Batman informs him of Raish's visit as they rocket out of the cave's entrance and chastises his young partner for not remembering that Raish is aware of Batman's greatest secrets. As they race through the streets of Gotham, they discuss the Riddler's message, which is the answer to his latest riddle. Batman deduces the message actually means Pinocchio and Jonah stew, as in a soup, which leads them to a local dive on the docks called the Belly of the Whale. This den of ill repute is run by a notorious fellow by the name of Stick Chivolo. Stick is known to sell drugs, but he may also be willing to consort with known supercriminals. Robin warns his partner they are probably walking into a trap, to which the Dark Knight responds, Kid, I know it's a trap. Back at Stately Wayne Manor, Alfred is alerted to a home invasion by the mansion's alarm system. Before he can properly respond, he is attacked by Killer Croc, who picks up the frail man and covers his nose and mouth until he passes out cold. Croc wonders why Batman would have any interest in this scrawny old guy, but he is choosing not to question orders, for now. The dynamic duo rushes into the belly of the whale, quite literally. There they find not only the Riddler, but Poison Ivy, Black Spider, Scarecrow, and Catman also waiting in the wings. The soldiers attack while the Riddler watches from the second floor balcony on high. In a bat fight straight out of 1966, the Cape Crusaders make short work of their foes and head for the Prince of Puzzlers. Their quizzical foe halts their rushing action. He tells Batman he can have the unconscious Black Spider and Catman, but informs his foe of the hostages in the custody of his associates, three of his closest friends, with one more on the way thanks to Killer Croc. Robin is visibly shaken at the mention of the reptilian hitman who murdered his parents, Joe and Trina Todd. Riddler relates the hostages are the Pennyworths, Vale, and Bullock. Batman doesn't let his foes escape. They're as good as dead. The Cape Crusader drops his head and orders the Riddler to take Ivy and Scarecrow and leave, while Robin gapes in disbelief. A gloating Riddler warns Batman not to follow, lest Croc murder his friends. Ever the detective, even in defeat, Batman notices something on Ivy's foot as she walks away. 
Outside, the villain's exit is noted by the Catwoman, who muses that despite Batman recently selecting Robin as his partner over her, she can still pursue the criminals on her own. Inside, Batman is on his knees in defeat. His flummoxed sidekick begs him to snap back into action, to develop a plan, to do something. Chapter 6, Bard, is illustrated by Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. At Gotham Police Headquarters, an officer confirms the kidnappings of Vicki Vale, Julia Pennyworth, and Detective Bullock for Commissioner Gordon. While Gordon considers reporting these disappearances to Batman, knowing the Cape Crusader's hands are already full with the escaped prisoners, a helicopter piloted by Joker and the Penguin hovers over the roof of the police station. Joker releases the helicopter's cargo, a massive net of steel cable webbing that unfolds over the building, virtually caging police headquarters. The Mad Hatter, Cavalier, Deadshot, Dagger, and Killer Moth slip into the building, and Hatter uses a kind of sonic disruptor device to knock all of the cops unconscious. Then, using the same device, he activates a generator that electrifies the steel netting around the building. The roof, however, is insulated enough that the Joker can walk across the roof and turn on the bat signal. But Batman and Robin don't notice the bat signal in the air as they return to Wayne Manor to verify the Riddler's claim that Alfred has been kidnapped. Batman walks down to the cave like a man in a trance, feeling more helpless and vulnerable than ever before. At Robin's encouraging, Batman answers the bat phone. On the line is Commissioner Gordon, held at gunpoint by the Joker. Gordon tells Batman that he and 35 of Gotham's finest are being held hostage at police headquarters. The Joker then tells Batman that he has three hours to rescue the cops before he, the Joker, starts executing them. Batman hangs up the phone, and the Penguin admonishes Joker for not demanding $10 million, as part of the ransom demands as per Rachel Ghoul's plan. The Joker doesn't care about the money, though. He's in it to stir up chaos and disorder, and if Penguin and the others don't get their money, oh well. Back in the cave, Batman slumps over in despair, telling Robin, It's over. There are too many hostages, too many villains, too many obstacles, and not enough allies. He can't win. And that's when Rachel Ghoul's daughter, Talia, arrives in the cave. She tells Batman that Raish doesn't want to kill him, nor does he care about the damage Joker and the others will cause. He wants to break Batman's spirit, wants to see the Dark Knight quit in the face of hopeless odds. Talia admits to helping her father survive, but she wants no part of Raish's sick new world, and offers to help the dynamic duo stop her father. Batman considers the impossible difficulty of his war on crime, but he's never quit before, and he won't now, certainly not with the lives of his loved ones on the line. Batman tells Robin and Talia to go to police headquarters and monitor the situation while he goes off on a private mission. Meanwhile, Rachel Ghoul sits in his secret lair and tells one of his underlings to summon his doctors. Chapter 7, A Small Itch Scratched, illustrated by Steve Lealoa, letters by Tom Orzachowski. In a greenhouse somewhere near Gotham, Poison Ivy taunts the captured Harvey Bullock with her feminine charms. Bullock notices some sharp-edged remnants of a broken flower pot nearby. While Ivy is busy monologuing, he manages to use the shards to cut the vines holding him and rushes for Ivy. But this was all part of Ivy's sick game. She blows a poison dart at the detective, and he falls once more. Catwoman then bursts through the glass walls and attacks the floral fatale. Her impending victory is interrupted by the sudden appearance of the Scarecrow, whose jump scare catches the Princess of Plunder off guard. Ivy and the Riddler knock Catwoman out and now have another hostage to add to their collection. Chapter 8, The Big Sticking, is illustrated by Joe Kubert with letters by Andy Kubert. 
Back at the docks, Stick Chuvalo's crew has reoccupied the belly of the whale. A few of his hoods stand guard outside, waiting for Batman to return. They're so busy talking, though, that they fail to hear the Batman come out of the harbor brandishing an oar from a rowboat. Inside the belly, Stick Chuvalo hears a commotion outside. Then one of his goons smashes through the door. Batman stalks inside, still holding the oar like a, well, like a bat. He tells Stick what a mistake it was to work with the Riddler. Stick sends his five remaining thugs against Batman. Batman beats the crap out of them while Stick grabs a double-barreled rifle from under the bar. Batman throws the oar at Stick, disarming him. Stick, on the floor in pain, tells Batman there are no drugs on the premises, so he can't imagine why Batman came back or what he's looking for. Batman studies an unbroken shot glass as well as a trace of red clay left by Poison Ivy earlier. Figuring out that the clay came from the abandoned orchards on the other side of Gotham, Batman leaves Stick with a warning to close up shop permanently or he'll be back every week with a bigger stick. Chapter 9, Branches Like Bones, illustrated by Ken Stesey. Batman approaches Ivy's greenhouse hideout, having deduced she was holed up in a new location, never wanting to root in the same place she was defeated twice. The Dark Knight detective uses Scarecrow's own shtick against him, uttering a simple boo, as he lays the Master of Fear to rest with one punch. Batman frees the now-conscious Catwoman, and the two rush Riddler, Ivy, and Croc. While the feline fury takes down the other two, Batman engages an all-too-eager Croc. The mad muscle man attempts to crack the hero's spine, but Batman has no desire to match physicalities. He must live up to the faith his adopted son Jason has invested in him, and win by any means possible. The masked manhunter eruptures a gas pellet from his utility belt in the monster's face, and he is soon down for the count. With a possible case of cracked ribs, Batman leaves Catwoman to tie up her former comrades in crime while he heads off for some batlings. Chapter 10. The Dark Trade is illustrated by Rick Leonardi and Carl Kiesel. At police headquarters, the Penguin and the Mad Hatter conspire to usurp Joker's control of the hostage operation so they can at least get paid for their crime. Up above the station, Batman and Catwoman fly over the roof in the Batplane. Batman appears to eject and parachute down to the roof, where Killer Moth is waiting. Killer Moth opens fire and seems to shoot Batman multiple times before he reaches the roof. Robin and Talia witness this to their horror, but Killer Moth quickly discovers the Batman that he shot was just a dummy. Killer Moth just barely has enough time to radio a warning to the Joker before the real Batman lands on the roof and takes Moth down. Meanwhile, Raish al Ghul and his men continue to monitor the villain's status through their hidden cameras. Raish reevaluates the situation, granting that the Batman might very well take all of the criminals down and save the cops. It won't be long after that that Batman comes for Raish. He orders his physicians to prepare the next part of the plan. They object, saying it might kill him, but Raish is insistent. Batman disables the generator powering the electrified web cage and gives Robin and Talia the green light to enter the police station. As they charge the building, Deadshot, Dagger, and Cavalier try to stop them. But Robin and Talia prove too much for the trio that Robin dismissively refers to as gun, sword, and knives. Then they go looking for Commissioner Gordon. Meanwhile, Joker goes up to the roof to find the unconscious killer moth and no sign of Batman. Then the Penguin and Mad Hatter show up and turn their guns on the Joker. They want the million in ransom money that Rachel Ghoul planned, and they won't let Joker screw that up. But the Joker activates a booby trap hidden in the helicopter, dousing Penguin and Mad Hatter with laughing gas. Batman confronts the Joker on the roof and manages to convince the clown prince not to shoot him at first sight. 
He then tells Joker that Rachel Ghoul's real plan was to turn the villains against each other to eliminate the competition. The thought of playing the fool is enough for Joker to agree to work with Batman to take Raish down. Batman asks for the location of Raish's hideout, but the Joker doesn't want to reveal that bit of intelligence. However, he trusts Batman's honor and integrity and confides that Raish is hiding under a windmill seven miles outside of Gotham. Batman thanks him and then punches him unconscious. Robin, Talia, and Commissioner Gordon reach the roof. Batman tells Catwoman where she can land the Batplane to pick them up so they can face Rachel Ghoul for the last time. Chapter 11, Under the Wind, illustrated by Brian Bolland. In a hidden cavern several miles north of Gotham, Rachel Ghoul disrobes, preparing to take his first conscious dip into a Lazarus pit. His physicians warn him he may not survive this unprecedented event, but Rachel will not hear of it. He and Batman are headed toward their inevitable climax and he must be more than the physical match of his hated but respected foe. Above, Batman blows a charge on the windmill concealing Raish's hidden fortress. He, Robin, Catwoman, and Talia descend into the Citadel. While his partners take care of Raish's men, the Batman stalks the demon's head himself. From out of the bubbling sulfur of the Lazarus pit, Raish al Ghul rises, proclaiming himself reborn, this time without dying first. Batman points out that thanks to Raish's cathartic actions, he too has been reborn. Raish gloats the detective's rebirth is without the added strength of ten men and rushes the masked manhunter. He strikes a killing blow toward Batman who dodges it in time. Raish pulls back his broken and mangled hand with a crazed look in his eyes, claiming he feels no pain. Despite this, he knows that his physicians were right. His experiment has doomed him. He is dying, so therefore his seemingly endless battle with the Gotham Guardian must be resolved this very night. As the two continue to battle, an earthquake begins to shake the cavern, set off by the earlier explosion. Raish pulls a sword, demanding that Batman join him in his oncoming world of serenity, in death. He leaps for the Dark Knight, who rises and tosses his ancient foe's body into the very pit from which he sprang. Raish's screams of agony are muffled by the sound of the very earth crumbling around them. Batman takes a long look to soak in the awful sight and sound of Raish's last fits of life, and then he is off. He joins his comrades, who climb topside seconds before the ground swallows the old windmill. A safe distance away, they watch the last remnants crumble into the ground. Batman tells Talia he is sorry over her father's fate. She tells him not to grieve over it. She is sorry enough for the world. As she walks away, the very earth Raish had pledged to save swallows him and takes him to the hell he long deserved. The epilogue, Fated Fate, is also illustrated by Brian Bolland. Robin leads Catwoman, Commissioner Gordon, Harvey Bullock, Vicki Vale, Julia Pennyworth, and Alfred, all blindfolded, to the Batcave. Alfred, for his part, is just pretending he's never been there. The others, for whom the cave is a new experience, look around in awe. They gather around a cake to celebrate the anniversary of the Batman, who arrives battered and bandaged. But when the group cheers for him, a stalactite, knocked loose by the earthquake at the windmill, falls from the cave's ceiling. It lands directly in the cake, smashing the dessert and putting out the candles. Robin wonders if it too is an omen, and Batman supposes it is, saying the rocky spire sticking out of the cake is like one big candle, signifying that this is no anniversary, but really the first night of a Batman reborn. Robin tries to get the others to try the cake, but no one is in the mood for a celebration, especially not Batman, who walks off into the cave thinking about all of the villains still at large. And so the night of resurrection nears its end, but when next he strides forth from this dark womb of bats, it all begins anew. And that ends Resurrection Night from Batman issue 400.
Whew. That, <laughs> that one wasn't epic, as we said. Yes. Chris, what did you think of this issue? Kind of big picture overall thoughts. Well, you know, overall, I, I really enjoy this issue. I mean, it, it lives up to that that epic feeling that you get from the cover. I mean, the the story has a very epic, uh, you know, season finale feel, or or you know, maybe even series finale feel to it. And it and it really is in a way the Earth One series finale. You know, the all the artists involved. It's it's got that great jam feeling of like Justice League number 200. I mean, it's not the greatest piece of literature, you know, created in Western civilization, like like Justice League 200, as Rob would say. But, you know, it's in that same vein. It's a, it's a great anniversary issue. The only sticking point that, it, that, that bothers me about this issue, and it's, it's bothered me since I picked it up, it's essentially the same idea as the last great Batman anniversary issue, which was Detective Comics number 526, which was the 500th appearance of Batman. Uh, that was just three years earlier. You had all Batman's foes, and they teamed up, and uh, that was when Killer Croc was the big bad guy. Yep. Uh, now, this this one does focus more on the villains than that one did. They were just kind of there in a way. The Joker got the most play out of it. There was a scene at the very beginning where Captain Stingery <laughs> dies, even though he's in this issue. <laughs> uh, so, whoops. Uh, <laughs> but right. uh, he didn't even get a who's who page, you know, so... Uh, but I can't imagine. But, uh, yeah, how can that? And dagger, no dagger. Who's who page? <laughs> what were they thinking? Come on, Zoom. You've got two new drawings to do. There you go. Where's Every stingery and dagger. If you're listening to this, Zoom, you can already. There's your new Zoom's who for you. I think only one uh, other but, person ever drew dagger. I think it was Gene Colan. I think that's where he originated, but I couldn't find it, the exact issue. Yes, it was. It was. Uh, it, I think it, I've, I've got it down here in my notes somewhere. I think it's like it's uh, Batman three eighty three or something. We'll get to it as we okay. go through right. the chapters. But but yeah. uh, three forty three. Batman three forty three. Okay. I'm sorry. January nineteen eighty two. This is his only appearance before. This is his last appearance. He had two appearances. <laughs> so there you go. You know, despite that, this uh, that that feeling of a little bit of feeling of deja vu. This mm-hmm. this is a this lives up to the hype definitely. And I mean, not only was this you know a similar. Story to the previous Batman anniversary, the setup for this issue, which was the massive jailbreak with all of the prisoners escaping from Arkham or the prison, this would become a trope. This would become kind of a stereotype in Batman stories. And Mm -hmm. certainly, like, I mean, you can look at the beginning of Nightfall to multiple stories since then have kind of borrowed the same idea of the massive jailbreak at Arkham and all of, and Batman having to round up all of his enemies at the same time. It's sort of like the Sinister Six problem, like like with Spider-Man. Like, somebody just decided that, you know what, you really want to test Batman, you have to throw him at all of these guys at the same time. Right, yeah, and and Batman even gets you know beaten down by by him in this story, just like Nightfall, and that that's how he ends up losing to Bane because yep. he's just so worn out and yep. and just kind of depressed. So it's kind of you know even Killer Croc wants to break his back. So there's yep. a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of parallels to Nightfall in this one issue, or you know. <laughs> And I, I kind of I, – I always sort of just in my head kind of compared this to Nightfall because I read them at around the same time. The first time I got this mm. issue would have been in the early-ish 90s after I had read I, I think like the first you know half of Nightfall at least. So I sort of like think about them together and also it also makes me think of that you know if they were telling this story today this wouldn't be one big anniversary issue this would be an entire year long story arc in current Batman comics. Oh, oh yeah and there'd be there'd be like satellite you know spin-off yeah. miniseries and or one shots and what's 
you know, what's Nightwing doing right now right, exactly. in this? What's there, there'd be a, a Vicky Vale and Julia Pennyworth one shot, you know? I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. one weird thing about this that's it, I never thought about this before, but you think about it, this is Batman number 400, big anniversary issue, the last Earth One Batman story. There's no Bruce Wayne in this story. That he's never Bruce Wayne. <laughs> I didn't even realize that, but you're right. He's never out of costume. Neither is Jason. Nope, neither one of them are. And I think it's interesting because in this era, Bruce Wayne was very important in the stories. Uh-huh, I mean, that uh-huh. yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Vicky Vale, Julia Pennyworth, and even Nocturna. And like I said, a lot of romantic interest storylines. There were storylines about people trying to take over Wayne Foundation or Wayne Enterprises. And as we move forward and we'll see Bruce Wayne as a character himself as the the act of Bruce Wayne even becomes less and less important in the comics. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is, in a way, kind of an odd signpost that <laughs> where we're headed. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Totally right. Something else we don't get in this issue is there are no ads. This mm. is a 64-page comic, and it's 60 pages of story. And then we get four little pinups at the end. But there are no ads, no little things in the middle of this. Um, it's all story, which is a great bang for your buck. And I was trying to think, were the other anniversary issues like that? I can't remember um, what other ones. Like, I've got the world's finest anniversary issue, and I don't, I haven't looked through that in a long time. So, I don't think Batman. I'm thinking Batman number five twenty six. I mean, Detective number five twenty six. Mm-hmm. I think it had ads because I remember it. Ha- it didn't have a. It basically, if it had a back cover. Then you know you can if you can if you know it didn't have a special back cover or wraparound then it right. then it probably had ads but like I think the Flash like number three hundred it didn't have ads it had a wraparound cover and yeah. uh, so they kind of went back and forth on whether they had ads or not during <laughs> the eighties for these anniversary issues. <laughs> And you also mentioned uh, Justice League of America 200, the greatest piece of literature, Western literature, according to Rob mm-hmm. Kelly, and how that had, you know, again, just this list of extraordinary talent and all of the famous artists who contributed to that issue. And you look at the list of the people who worked on this one, it's a really strong list, but most of them had never worked on Batman before. Like, I mean, like, some, right. of, them, some of them may have drawn Batman, but I think, like, few of them, like... Perez had drawn Batman. I think Steve Lytle had drawn Batman with the Outsiders. But I think that's mm-hmm. it. Like, for some of these guys, this was their first DC work or their first, like, big, noticeable DC work. Like, this was almost a showcase of new talent more than it was, like, uh, established. I mean, when you throw Joe Kubert in there, that kind of throws the whole argument out the door. But, right, right. you know, some of these guys didn't have the, you know, big resume when you think of, like, who contributed to JLA 200. Right, and I think that might be partially because at, at this point there was, you know, the the Batman books in the uh, in the early '80s. They had a pretty consistent run there, where Don Newton and right. Gene Colan were alternating back and forth on, you know, Batman and Detective. And uh, but then, you know, Don Newton, he well, actually, he was going to move over to Infinity Incorporated anyway, but he 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 died young, and yeah. and it was great. I mean, that just was a, a gut blow to me because I loved his his Batman stuff, yeah. and yeah, yeah. and uh, then you got. Uh, like Pat Broderick came in and Tom Mandrake, but the last few years of Minch's run seemed like they couldn't nail down a consistent uh, creative team like they had had the previous years. And that this might be me. I haven't really looked at those books in a long time, but it just seems that way in hindsight. And so, so it's kind of interesting that, you know, they didn't really have a, a go-to person to be the main artist to draw this, you know? Right. And so opening, opening it up to, 
all these different artists. And you're right, most of them, it's almost like, you know, the early days of Who's Who, where they got artists that were popular from other publishers and other titles to take a stab at different characters. And, and uh, you know, you had some people doing the characters they were associated with, like the Justice League 200 was mostly that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's just a gorgeous book and, and uh, just, you know, one of the great uh, jam comics. And I don't, I think, I think this, I'm glad we're covering it as the first episode because I think this issue gets overlooked a lot. I mean, it's kind of odd that it's, uh, yeah, I guess because of all the the flurry over the Dark Knight Returns and, you know, it's sandwiched in between the Dark Knight Returns, uh, or the, actually the Dark Knight as it was called in the miniseries form, coming out and then like Batman Year One. I mean, this is literally smack dab in the middle, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, in between the two Miller projects, you know, four issues from now you'll have Batman Year One and Dark Knight 4 just shipped the month before this so right. you know it's it gets kind of lost in the shuffle and I think that's a shame because it's it's a it's a really it's a, it's a, just a really special comic right and all credit to you and for the listeners checking this podcast out this issue covering this one for our first was was all Chris's idea um, I was not planning to start with this one. I was thinking either starting with Legends or starting with Batman Year One. And Chris was like, no, we really got to hit this one as a sort of, uh, not a palate cleanser, but just sort of like a table setter. Like, this is what we had, and now we're moving forward after this. And I completely agree. This is a great way to start this off. And and let's kind of, I mean, we're talking about the artists. Let's actually get into it, sort of what they contributed. Okay. So looking at the first page when you say John Byrne does the first page, I think you have certain expectations, and this page is not what I would expect from John Byrne. I didn't know it was him for years. I thought they had incorrectly put Byrne on the cover that he had <laughs> contributed to it, <laughs> and then I finally saw his little signature. It's like, oh, that is John Byrne, and his his penguin looks burnish. Yeah, but that's about it. Yeah, it, you you mentioned it in your description when we were going through like the synopsis. The characters that we love, Batman, Robin, Catwoman, Talia, they're very small. We don't get much of their body. Most of the page is taken up by a windmill, this garish-looking windmill. And it's just a like, I'll come back to this because thematically, the windmill is very important to the story, and it makes a lot of sense. But in the beginning, before you kind of realize that, it's like, when I think of Batman, I don't think of a windmill. Like I think of Batman in a city, in an urban setting. Why is he in a field with a windmill? And the serpent with all of the characters in the background. I don't know about you, but my copy of this book is is pretty faded, and it's hard to pick some of them out. Like yeah, you, it, it, you did, the printing's not great. Yeah, you did a good job yeah. of naming all those characters because some of them I was like, that's um, that's Mad Hatter, or that could be somebody's elbow. I can't really tell. <laughs> Yeah, it's the you know you've got you've got the uh, the faces of the villains in the in the clouds more or less yeah. are uh, uh, surprint as fans of Who's Who will know they're they're colored in like a magenta type ink uh, there there's no black it's just it's it's they're printed in a magenta ink uh, I should say the outline of them and uh, it's it's kind of odd you know the the creepy windmill thing kind of reminds me of um, the DC comics of the 70s well you, you know like you're going to cover on midnight the podcasting hour mm-hmm. when the horror books were big at DC just about every DC title cover at least had some kind of horror tinge to it for a while there i mean they all looked spooky and uh, there was a lot of batman out in trees and 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 you know out in the woods and That's things true. during that That's period true. and so it kind of feels Almost like it's hearkening back to that in a way, and and you know one of the odd things for Batman toy collectors is the the famous Aurora model kit has Batman swinging on a 
branches of a tree, which is just kind of odd. So <laughs> that that always makes me when I stop and think about that. It's like, well, you know, whenever you get Batman out of the city into the into the woods, it, it kind of makes me think of that. But yeah, it is. You know, you think uh, Byrne may have come up with something a little more symbolic of Batman, but this is definitely you know signposting this windmill is important to yeah. the story. <laughs> All right, into chapter one. Sure. Uh, One of the first notes that I had is the idea of Poison Ivy and Riddler in the state pen rather than Arkham. Yes. Um, Certainly sets this in a particular time. And I actually – and I think we talked a little bit about this when Yumi and Cindy talked about Poison Ivy on Secret Origins podcasts. I like the idea of Poison Ivy not being crazy, not thinking that she is a plant lady. Um, So Mm -hmm. for me, it makes sense that she would be in the state pen uh, unless you give her – telekinetic powers over uh, plants and everything, and then maybe you can make the case that she needs to be in Arkham because they have more sophisticated security, even though why the asylum would have more sophisticated security than an actual <laughs> federal prison. Doesn't, I'm not sure about that. But yeah, I like, I, I like that. But once I started thinking about that, I was like, well, okay, well, why is Croc in the asylum? Wouldn't Croc be in the prison? And I also, yeah. I really miss this version of Killer Croc. I mean... Mm-hmm, I do too. It, it took me a while to actually dig up like the first appearances of Croc and, and Jason Todd. It was only about a year ago, a little bit more maybe, when I actually read those issues. And I had never really had much regard for Killer Croc. I never thought that much about him until I read his earliest appearances. And I was like, this is a great character. I wish we could go back to him where he's just... He's just a, a crazy, not crazy, but like just a badass kind of gangster, just a, a street thug character that just happens mm-hmm. to have this bad like skin condition, but also like smart, intelligent enough to be a, like a gang lord, like to have his own crew, his own gang, and everything. And I wish we could go back to that. And it just seems like they've made him more of an animal, like not even human looking lately. And I, I, in part, I blame Jim Lee for that, but I think mm-hmm. there you could also say the anime series for all the greatness it did it kind of portrayed him as a stupid character and i think that kind of helped once they made him dim-witted and simple-minded it was easy to just make him more feral and and less of a a serious threat to batman yeah croc's interesting because when he first showed up i bought those comics as they came out and he was you know he was kind of a different type of batman villain he wasn't interested in you know, he wasn't leaving clues and you know all that stuff. He was a thug, like you said. He was a gang lord, and uh, it reminds you of a character that would show up on the Daredevil Netflix series or something. Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, or you know, like special guest appearance by Vin Diesel as Killer Croc. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know yeah. when he's not like stupid, crazy lizard looking. He's he's just got a like a skin disorder, like you said. And after Crisis, and we'll get into that, obviously, they changed Jason's origin. They didn't really seem to know what to do with Croc, and, and they didn't use him a whole lot until you got into Nightfall, and they basically used Killer Croc to show how strong Bane was, and right. had Bane defeat Killer Croc, and then, then he's portrayed as a, you know, a, hit him with a rock, you yeah, know, over yeah. in the animated series, and, and uh, which I love, but still, yeah, he, he his, his potential as this type of villain was really squandered. There was a great part in one of those Batman issues where Batman like is tracking Croc and he like goes into his apartment. I always remember that. And Croc just, it's something that just sets him off that Batman's in his home. He, he crossed the line by coming into his home versus his, his hideout or his, you know, his, his warehouse or wherever his goons were. And he just went nuts 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, that was a great little bit. I mean, that Jerry Conway actually created a, a really interesting villain. And, and so it's nice to this is probably the final appearance of that version of Killer Croc. Yeah, and, you're right. Uh, once once they took that away, once they took away his connection to Robin, I think you, you said it right. They didn't know what to do with him. Yeah. And the, the, the idea that you mentioned that who's in what prison or, you know, it really is strange because, you <laughs> you know, you can argue that the Riddler always belonged in Arkham because of his compulsion for leaving. And of course, there was no Arkham on the Batman TV series. But, you know, the Riddler came across as the craziest, even crazier than the Joker, Frank yeah. Gorshin's Riddler, who Steve Lytle draws great in that one panel where we see the Riddler. That's dead on Frank Gorshin. Yeah, I is. love it. <laughs> you can just hear him, you know. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, Steve Lytle's art is, he is, uh, I think, one of the most underrated comic artists, period. I've always liked his stuff. I wish he'd done more, period. I wish he'd done more work. I know he did a lot of Legion. He did start out on the Doom Patrol, but he, I guess, is just kind of slow. He, you know, he's, his, his work's meticulous, and he just doesn't work real fast, mm-hmm. which is just a shame because... This makes me want like a Steve Lytle Batman one shot or a graphic novel or or something, and it you know just never came to be. I think when I was talking to Doug Zavisha about Steve Lytle, when we were talking about the secret origin of the Doom Patrol, he said something that struck me that Steve Lytle drew the characters in the Doom Patrol book like he was making models for an action figure line. Mm. And I think that even though he doesn't draw most of the characters in their costume, if you look at their faces, if you look at their types, and even like the little glimpse we get of Batman and Robin, these feel like he's prepping action figures for these characters. They have that sort Mm. of like classical model. Like that's what they look like. That's what you see. Um, It's like some weird synthesis between Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. And Brian Bolland. You know, there's like some weird in-between phase with Steve Lytle. I can see that. I will say his poison ivy, since Shag's not here, I'll say his poison ivy is hot. (laughs) (laughs) She is. In in prison grays, I will even say. You know, it's like, nice. He posed her in that particular uh, position, and it's like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. Okay. (laughs) Then the next chapter, I mean, if you're going to have George Perez draw a chapter in this book, it's got to be the chapter when you have all of the villains in all of their costumes. I mean, he gives us clumps of two dozen Batman rogues gathered around. These are crowded images, but he knows how to balance them in a way that I don't know if any other artist really does. And these look great. And you just, you look at all of these guys and like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that character. And like, you know, we always, there's like that upper echelon of Batman villains that you always think of like the A-list. And here we get B-listers, we get C-listers, we get Dr. Double X. Okay. <laughs> Like there were a few of these when I, I mean, I've, I've been reading Batman comics for 25 years and I was like looking at, I was like, who the hell is Mirage? Where did Mirage come? Oh, I remember that guy. Oh, okay. And I was like, had to like, I I seriously had to look up some of these guys, not just the dagger, but, um, Mirage did get a who's who page, which is weird. Yeah. I was just like, really? Was Dr. Phosphorus that much of a Batman? Okay. Well, I guess, you know, he belongs in Um, we get uh, Mr. Freeze in his um, superpowers like costume. Which, mm-hmm, yeah. If you note, that's not the same costume that uh, Steve Lytle drew on the end page seven. He's got his like right. classic, like almost like Captain fish Cold bowl. looking costume with a fishbowl. And then on the next page, Perez draws him to look like the the toy from the superpowers line. Yeah, and then Ballin draws the fishbowl in the last page. Yeah, I think that costume only showed up here and then in the. 
the superpowers or the super friends comic book adaptation or something like that. I don't know if it, I think I think it, it didn't show they didn't use Mr. Freeze much early post crisis at all. And in fact, the only appearance that I'm uh, that I know of for sure that I can think of, I'm pretty sure he's in that outfit. It's later. It's up in the 90s in the early 90s. But it's the Robin two miniseries where Robin fights the Joker on his own. And the Joker actually, quote unquote, kills Mr. Freeze. And he's wearing that armor. Yes. And that's, I think, the last time we see that armor. And yes. it's like they're treating Mr. Freeze as essentially, you know, he's like a lame leftover Batman TV villain <laughs> at that point. That's before the animated series got a hold of him and said, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> he's got potential. <laughs> turned, him, turned him into one of my favorite villains, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Although I got to say, I, I've always liked the character. From I, I had that old toy, and I liked him in the, the Batman TV series. I had like the silver hazmat suit and the flaring orange eyebrows. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah the, the auto, auto premature. Auto premature. <laughs> yeah. Wild, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like him best too. George Sanders was too subdued. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at yeah, some it's, it's, of, oh, go ahead. It's I think it's great what Perez does with the shot we first shot we see of the villains in the woods. You got Tweedledee and Tweedledum playing around in a tree stump, yeah. you know, and I mean, you know, they're like hiding from one another and nobody could really see, know what to do with them much either other than, I think they used them in the, the World's Finest miniseries that Dave Gibbons and Steve Rude did and that that's about the only time I ever remember them showing back up much. I so. actually didn't even notice Killer Croc was there next to them until just now. He's like almost disappearing <laughs> into the tree because of the coloring. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I had to look even closer to that. Yeah, I almost didn't notice that Croc was there standing next to him. Other villains, the Cavalier, I've never really cared much for this version of the Cavalier, and I think it's because the first time I saw the character was in uh miniseries in Legends of the Dark Knight that Tim Sale drew. Uh, mm-hmm. And he redesigned him to look I'm trying to like how he he almost like had Zorro. yeah I was gonna say he almost had like a Zorro without the cape and of course not the the color pattern he almost had like a red sort of bandana mask with like the long tails and white shirt but I always like that was the first version of the Cavalier that I saw and I always just loved that design that he gave so anytime I see him like this I'm like eh, that's not worthy of a Batman villain that guy dressed like a Three Musketeer that could be anybody you know that's <laughs> <laughs> they used him on Batman the Brave and the Bold here and there which was was kind Kind of neat. Of course, that fit in because they were doing a lot of Dick Sprang pastiches on that show, and Dick Sprang drew a lot of yeah. Cavalier appearances, and and must actually had Batman and Robin meet the Three Musketeers several times, <laughs> uh, thanks to Professor Nichols. But he's one of those characters that I think they he shows up because he people remembered him from his Golden Age appearances. You know, he he appeared enough to make a dent. He's kind of like Puzzler in Superman. You know, the Puzzler will show up, but what's anybody really done yeah, with him in yeah. 60 years? You know, it's that, that type of thing. Right. I like the talk that Robin and Alfred have in the kitchen when Alfred's sort of like laying it out for this kid. Why would Batman like birthdays? Why would he like celebrating all of the work that he's done? Because he hasn't stopped crime. He puts these guys in jail and they just get out again and and nothing really lasts. And he puts them in jail and very few of them ever like come out. None of them have reformed. This is something that Diablo Frank and I talked about, about like one of the differences between Batman and somebody like Wonder Woman is Wonder Woman actually has a sort of precedent for reforming her villains. Like yeah. she's, she's turned some of her villains back into heroes or at least like decent members of society and that's not Batman's gig, <laughs> you know. That's how Batman now, Paula, made... Paula von Gunther in the she you know they reformed her and she was always operating the purple ray on Paradise Island, you know. Right, right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, yeah, that's true. I mean, you've got Catwoman here at this time that had reformed and but, you know, she was essentially a, you know, a supporting character slash part time partner in this era. So almost kind of making you think, are we headed toward Earth, too? What? <laughs> you know, hmm, it's interesting. Yeah. But it's it's kind of, you know, nowadays, I mean, well, in the post-crisis era, as it chugs along and begins to congeal, I don't think we'd even have Alfred and Robin attempting to have an anniversary for Batman. He'd be too, he would be too morose about it to get any kind of, uh, you know, anything out of it other than just depression, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I failed. You know, that's, you know, that kind of makes you wonder why Alfred's even going along with the idea to a point. But, yeah. you know, it's 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 a nice it's a nice little bit. Batman being in a funk over perusing his case files in response to a mysterious note was essentially the plot of Len Wein's The Untold Legend of the Batman miniseries. So yeah, you're right. You're right. That, that kind of jumped out at me. I'm like, yeah, he got a note. It Spoiler warning. It, well, I won't tell you who the note's from if you haven't read it, which. Why isn't that traded? I guess because it's three issues and it's not big enough for a trade. But that's well, that's a crime that that's not in a trade paperback somewhere. Weren't they oversized issues though? Weren't they larger than like the normal comic? I think they might be. Yeah. So it. The, yeah, they should be. I think they they might be in that uh, what Tales of the Batman or Len Wein. Yes, they are. They okay. are. Yeah, need, they're in the Tales of the Batman Len Wein collection. Um, okay, well, they, they need to be out somewhere because yeah. that's 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 your Earth One Batman history, right? Right, right there. <laughs> right. Getting into Chapter Three, and we're gonna, we will talk about Bill Sienkiewicz's art when we get to Chapter Four. But thinking about this, I was like, you know, what? if I was going to put Sienkiewicz on one interior page of this, it would have been the scene when Julia opens, goes to the bathroom, like opens her shower and sees Scarecrow there. And he like lunges out and terrifies her. That would be the page to put Bill Sienkiewicz on because he could have te- he could have made it terrifying. And that, no offense. I like Paris Collins elsewhere. Yes. And I know Shag's a, a big fan of him. But this is real just pedestrian, especially yeah. after Lytle and Perez. And, and I'm the same way. I like Paris Collins a lot. But I just think they're after the last two, this feels very uh, the art feels very small, like the a lack of detail. You know, far be it for me to question Rachel Ghoul's plan or the particulars thereof, but okay, Poison Ivy's taken out Bullock, you know, the plant like knocks him unconscious. Okay, fine. Maybe send some backup, and I, you know, I don't want to be sexist, but she's dragging Bullock out of there with like a vine wrapped around him. He's got to weigh at least twice as much as her. Right. Bullock is a big guy. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. That's a good point. <laughs> she's just dragging him unconscious. That's like, that's like. That's got to be like 250, 300 pounds of dead weight right there. <laughs> right, because he sends the Riddler and Black Spider together to tackle Vicky Vale. Now, I know Vicky was – they made a big point in the in the Batman books. At this time, Vicky had got tired of Bruce messing around with her, you know, running off to become Batman and, <laughs> and not telling her what's going on. And they made this – this. I think it was when Tom Mandrake was, was drawing the, the comics, but – that she had, you know, I'm going to get fit and I'm going to get all, you know, buff and cut and I, I don't need you, you know, and and uh, I mean this big, you know, character change that, oh, Vicky's all let's get physical Olivia Newton-John now, yeah. you know, and, and it's it's uh, uh, so, I mean, this is part of you're seeing part of that here. So, I mean, maybe that's why they sent two people. But, yeah, I think 
you're right, Ivy should have got Black Spider to help her. I'm, uh, surely the Riddler can pick Vicky up, I would think. <laughs> Although, I don't know, the way he draws, and I love the way he draws the Riddler, but the way he does it, I, he looks almost as skinny as she does. Like he, Well, yeah, he's spindly, yeah. He is. He's like a stick figure, and I, I, I love it. I love that take on the Riddler. That's so good. That's so classic, but uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we get to Chapter 4, and your favorite part of this story, the Bilsenkevich pages. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I appreciate Sienkiewicz's craft, but I have always hated these pages. I mean, just I think they're just over the top with their abstract nature, and they're honestly just ugly. I don't know how much of that's the comic printing limitations of the day kind of adding to it, but they're just they're just ugly. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Like, I, I like the kind of quirky atmosphere. Like. I kind of like the idea of him drawing the Batcave just because of the weird, crazy proportions he gives to the giant playing card and the giant dinosaur and the penny and everything, but it doesn't really come out. And I, and I mentioned this, to, like, okay, in Chapter 2, there was a big thing about, you know, the villains find their secret mastermind, and we don't see him. He's hidden in the shadows. So this is the chapter that reveals that it's been Ra's al Ghul, but we don't get a big dramatic reveal. It's like there was a disconnect. Like we need, we need a, like a real panel where we get a good glimpse, and it's like that dun 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 moment. But when I was reading this, I was like, if he hadn't called Batman detective, I wouldn't have known that that was Ra's al Ghul right away. Because and I just know that that's Ra's al Ghul calls him detective. But if not for that, I was like, who's the weirdo in like the green thing? Like that? What is that? A robe or a thing? Like I don't. Like we don't get like a good <laughs> facial shot. Yeah. The green moo moo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I'm with you. That it's hard to you know it's hard to follow. I mean it's not it's not easy to the storytelling is just you know who, who cares about storytelling? You know this is right. I want to draw scratchy stuff. That's kind of the feeling you get. It's it's kind of like our complaint about when Keith Giffen was in his phase in the Clayface yes. story we covered in Secret yeah. Origins. It's it's the same thing I've got here. I, I mean, I'm all for, you know, different art styles and not everybody has to draw super clean, you know, style guide type artwork. But, you know, come on, dial it back a little bit, Bill. You know, uh, now I will say one thing, though, and it was just came from this reading of this book. I will concede that the art probably works better here than in any other chapter. Now, you brought up a good point about the scarecrow scaring Julia. Now, that that would have added a lot of dimension to that. Mm-hmm. But this chapter say if you had ricardo villagran and tom sutton or tom sutton and ricardo villagran do this chapter you would have been bored to tears because it's just two guys standing around talking so yeah raw tension-filled art kind of helps sell that this is a very uh volatile confrontation even though nobody other than batman throwing that table or whatever the part of the back computer or whatever it is uh, it, it does sell the the tension in the air probably better than than any uh, other artist may have been able to because now Perez was always great at talking heads but you know you wanted him yeah. for the crowd scene yeah so it does work here probably better than it would anywhere else maybe you know I think, I think you're right Sinkevich's style gives you the sense of emotion that the scene needs and what Batman is feeling and like the, the mounting fear and the panic and, and the stress of this, uh, of this situation, this confrontation with Raish. But in terms of storytelling, panel to panel movement and flow, there are times when I just don't think it's working 
like the times when like he's moving like even like the the last page from this section when he's like walking and then the penny drops and wait is he turning around like it's yeah there there are things about it that really really work and i i hear what you're saying like and this this could have been a very boring chapter if not for this art style but there are other parts where it's just confusing. It's just I'm not sure what I'm looking at. And I think the first page of this chapter is the worst. It, it took me a couple of readings to figure out what was going on with the sound effects of the bat and the bat flying against the wall and the reveal of Rachel Ghoul being in the same room with him. I don't think that was all made clear. So Yeah, yeah, I agree, yeah. I, I will ask this question. Do we – and I haven't gone back and looked, but is this the beginning of Batman with the shoulder points? Uh, I don't know of any other artist who did it before this. Me neither. Um, I mean, he doesn't have them on the cover. He's got like basically a two by four in his cape. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> his his shoulders are completely square. Uh, but um, you know, of course, artists like Norm Bray Fogel pick that up and run Kelly, with it. Kelly and Jones certainly, yeah, yeah. Kelly Jones and and the the, the one that kind of killed it, and and I love his work otherwise, but Phil Jimenez. Yeah, you know, he drew in a very he drew in a very Perez almost photorealistic style to a point, but he would give Batman those humongous shoulder points, and it made it because the way he drew it looked like it had to be part of his costume, and it right. just looked nuts. It looked like, a, like it the, just looked, yeah. It's like, come on, Batman, we gotta get to the Batmobile. Wait a minute, I haven't put my shoulder pads in yet. <laughs> Hold on, can't get these damn things right. You know, I mean, it's just you know, it's, yeah. There would have to be like a wire built within the cape to like give them that point or something. Yeah. No, right, right, yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Um, on to another interesting artist. We get Art Adams' first work for DC Comics. Oh, uh, yeah. According to Mike's Amazing World. Uh, it's these pages uh, of this issue. And I should have noticed it. And I, just knowing that, knowing his his resume at Marvel with New Teen Titans, or not New, yeah, New Teen Titans, uh, New Mutants and everything. Mm-hmm. And I should have picked up on it, but... I didn't notice it until now. There are just there are a lot of similarities that I see between Art Adams and early proto Rob Liefeld. <gasps> Shut your mouth. Now, it's a <laughs> lot better. It's a lot better, and certainly he can draw feet. Um, yeah. But like, just sort of like the if you look at Rob's earliest work on on New Mutants and like the first couple of issues of X Force, like the the body shapes, like the bulging thighs and then skinny shins, um, like mm-hmm. the, the way he does things. Certainly, a lot of the lines on the faces, like around the mouth and around the eyebrows and everything, just tons of lines. And that, that I mean, this kind of shows you where art was going in the in the early nineties with like this type of style with. With how many like cross hatches and scratches they did to to create a sense of depth or whatever for facial features, um, but also yeah. just like kind of like lines around characters, like kind of jittery lines to make them look like they're moving. Like the scene with Croc holding up Alfred, like when you just see all the lines around Alfred to give you the sense that he's like moving, he's shaking or something like that. That felt like a thing that I saw a lot in those days of like Marvel '90s comics. Right. I mean, there's I I, I agree with you. It's it's something I hadn't really thought of, but. There's there's a little bit of Jim Lee in mm-hmm. the you know here too I think uh, and as you know if you go back and look at like the long shot I guess long shots where Art Adams like came yes, out he came out yes. like fully formed yeah. you know yeah. and my understanding was comic you know they they found him at a comic convention they were just like holy crap yeah you know <laughs> yeah. who is this kid and he was like really young mm-hmm. and uh, you know he, he was probably like not even twenty here or something right. and uh, so you know he was definitely influential on I think a, a good chunk of the the image guys but he uh, you know he's got a little bit 
I can see a little bit of uh, Michael Golden yes, in here. Too. His his Batman looks a little Michael Golden. There's a couple places where it looks a little bit like Pat Broderick's Batman. Um, you know, there's maybe even a tad bit of Bernie Wrights in here and there. So it's interesting. Uh, I think this is. I remember really liking this chapter because it it did have a it had a fresh energy to it. It was kind of like. It did, they didn't look wrong, but I'd never quite seen the characters look like that before. Yeah, you know? yeah. and make no mistake. And, I mean, even though I compared them to somebody like a Rob Liefeld, I love these pages. Like this chapter just looks great, and the action sequences. It's and you're right. Like this doesn't look like something you had seen before. This looks like a no, and it, a new type of visual language. So. And it's really interesting because this chapter is is almost more classic Batman than any other chapter in the book. It feels like the TV show. <laughs> In a lot of ways, because you got them roaring out of the ca- the bat cave in the Batmobile. You got the shot of the car. I mean, just like you know, you almost wait and Robin say atomic batteries to power, turbines to speed. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, they're they're roaring out of there. They get into the fight with the sound effects. You know, and the big villain fight and and Batman. They're driving into town. Batman's telling Robin he's figured out Riddler's clue, and then his leap of logic is almost Adam West-like, you know. Mm-hmm. Knowing the Riddler, it would be the Pinocchio and Jonah Stew, old chum, <laughs> you, know, that type, you know, that type thing. It, it just it feels more classic than, than a lot of the other chapters. And, and, of course, you got the, you know, some things like when Robin is, you know, visibly shaken by the mention of, of Killer Croc. That's obviously not from the TV show, but it, uh, this just stood out to me. And it's interesting – this is 1986, and the next year, Art Adams does the Action Comics Annual Number One with the Superman Batman team up. Yeah, yes, yes the Skeeter that we've we've covered on Superman. Yep, yep. And uh, and and um, his art style has evolved a lot between here and there, and his Batman is drastically different. His Batman is very Frank Miller mm-hmm. uh, compared to this. He's he's big and you know thick. I mean, he's not quite as thick as Frank Miller's, but. But uh, he's he's soaked up a lot of uh, influence there, and his art style is probably a little closer to what it is now there than it is here too. So, yeah. Catwoman looks great in these pages. <laughs> she, mm-hmm. she looks yes, good. She does. Yes, she does. Oh, and I should point out because I think this is the one time we get to see. Uh, one thing I want to keep track of on this show is what Batmobile they're driving. Uh, oh yeah. And, yeah, I mean, because I think that's going to be fun to keep up with because you know you're going to get a lot of this Batmobile. This is the uh, Batmobile that uh, debuted, and a lot of times you'll see it called the Batmobile of 1980, mm. but it really debuted in 1978. It was actually used on the Challenge of the Super Friends cartoon. Uh, they switched from the previous one to this one and used this car throughout, and I believe Dick Giordano designed this version. This, oh. this a lot of people will call the Superpowers Batmobile. It's huh. very close to the toy that was released in the Superpowers line. Not exactly, but close. All right. Chapter six, we get uh, we get the villains taking over the police station. I didn't have a lot of notes for this chapter. Yeah, me neither. It's it's kind of the and no offense to Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran, but this is kind of the the most boring looking chapter in the book. It's just not it's not very exciting. It's the art style is just kind of. I mean, you've, we've had a lot of different dynamic art styles, and this one's very stayed you know it's just uh they did the star trek comics at DC. that's what i was gonna say wasn't tom sutton known for the star trek series yeah 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 and i've seen tom sutton's work on other stuff like he did a lot of charlton horror stuff and it's like really some of it's really strange and out there almost approaching sienkiewicz levels which is weird because this he's very dialed down i don't know if it's ricardo villagran's inks uh, you know but it, it's i mean it's not it's not it's you know it's solid stuff but it's just kind of 
like when Talia, you know, she she doesn't get a very good introduction. You know, Batman and Robin are just standing there, and all of a sudden she's in the panel. It's it it, it screams at me as a you know as a would be comic artist over the years trying to. You know, the, the, how to draw comics the Marvel way would tell you not to do the panel like that. <laughs> you know, you, you'd have this uh, windmill uh, tent, uh, tilt like uh, the old Batman TV show again. And you'd have Talia like entering in the cave door with close ups of Batman and Robin like gaping Talia, you know, or something, <laughs> you know, as she walks in the door. But this is just like she's not in the panel and then she is, you know. Yeah, I, I was actually going to say, I think these are the most silver agey panels of the bunch. Mm-hmm. This feels like a Silver Age chapter because of the art design and the way he composes the characters and like frames them and everything. It's yeah, this feels like Silver Age Batman and Robin, like something yeah, out of the fifties like, or sixties prior to the new yeah, look design. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of it's interesting too. The one panel we see Harvey Bullock on the monitor, he's lost a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out who that was supposed to be. Like I, was like, I guess it's who? Bullock. It's got yeah, it's got to be. He's in the he's in the greenhouse there. Like that's the only character that it would make sense to be. But it's like, did they not look at other comics like to see who he was? But he looks like Bruce Wayne tied up there. I mean, he's like spelt and <laughs> you know he's got abs and a, a, you know a, a strong chest. I mean, jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Bullock being tied up in the greenhouse, brings us to chapter seven, the Steve Lealoa pages. Now, I've got a soft spot for Steve Lealoa just because he was the inker on one of the uh, most famous issues of G.I. Joe, which is the famous mm. silent issue, issue 21. Oh, that, yeah. That Larry Hama mm-hmm. penciled himself and Steve Lealoa was the finisher. And I guess like they were kind of close because there was actually – there's a G.I. Joe character who is named after Steve Lealoa. It's the character Torpedo um, from one of the toys. Oh. I think his his name on like a file card is like Edward Lealoa or something and the Lealoa part was oh, taken. Wow. It, was, it was because of Steve Lealoa who, who was working in Marvel bullpen at the time oh cool cool yeah. so yeah it was was torpedo was one of the the uh frog men right or yep, the yep. scuba he divers the, he or was the, the first stuff. character in the he was in the second series and he had the scuba diver suit yep yep right right yep so. gotcha i really like poison ivy in these pages i mean this is a very Me different too. art style this isn't like the others it's it's a little bit more cartoony um but i oh yeah like especially on like page 37 i like the way he does poison ivy you definitely get that uh that femme fatale, sort of sultry, seductive air about her. I like it. Oh yeah, she's she's just. I love that. that it's a nice little character bit mm-hmm. uh, that she's just toying with him. I mean, she set that up just to. I mean, it, this could almost be a filler chapter, but mm-hmm. you know, she's you know, other than when Catwoman comes in, but it's such a nice little. She she gets one of the better character bits of all the villains with this because uh, it really just shows that. She's just she's bored, so she's just gonna mess with this guy, you know. And 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 Lealoa's art's just he really sells it. And uh, I, I think it's interesting too that as much as I love it, on the top panel on page thirty eight, it looks like when Bullock's drugged, he looks like he slipped into a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. <laughs> I, I mean, his eyes are like huge, and he, it's 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 very very cartoony. I mean, but and, I mean, and it, I it, kind, that, it kind of works. Yeah, I, and that style works for some of the panels. Certainly, like when it's just close ups of her vamping, and that little panel where like Bullock is kind of like out of sorts. But towards the end of that page, when they're beating, when they ambush Catwoman, they beat her up. I'm kind of eh, that feels like a little bit rushed. Like they just kind of. Those last couple of panels, I, I, they don't feel as good. I, Catwoman doesn't look as good. Scarecrow just looks sort of 
thrown in there and like the panel where it's just her a close up of her face and like the sound effects as she's bitten getting taken out. It looks a little phoned in, yeah. Right, right. And then we've got Mr. Joe Hubert himself coming in. <laughs> wow. Stepping up to the plate. Did not see this one coming. Um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, this isn't like the, you know, in the JLA 200, you know, Hawkman's going to get a chapter. Well, right. somebody called Joe Hubert, right? right? <laughs> and again, I mean, this is a guy who was working from, you know, the early 40s, but wasn't known for drawing Batman. I mean, I'm sure he had no. uh, in like World's Finest issues and like things like that over the years, but he wasn't like a regular known Batman artist. But his work is perfectly fitting for this chapter because this feels like a golden age segment. You've got your urban vigilante mm-hmm. just busting up a, a bar on the docks full of hoods and gangsters. You know, yeah. th- this feels like something out of the pulps. And that was the era where Kubert cut his teeth. Yeah. And nobody does atmosphere like Kubert. I mean, it's, you know, you just, you can smell that place. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, just, you just, it smells like, you know, the, the river, which probably doesn't smell good. And, and the, where the ocean and the river are meeting in, and then it smells like uh, the fish and, it's just it probably just in right. booze and you know yeah. and then Batman's got the big it, it's kind of I think it is kind of odd that maybe maybe Mitch was going a little too far with the whole stick thing that Batman walked in with the ore right you know maybe if he picked it pulled it over you know like it was it was over top of a, a frame or something in the inside the restaurant and he pulled it off the wall and used it at the end of this chapter my it just seems weird that Batman you know. When has Batman ever decided? Oh, I need to go grab a big offensive <laughs> weapon, you know, and yeah. take it to, to take out. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it might have been just a little, a little too on the nose uh, throughout the whole thing, you know. But yeah. it, it, who cares? It's gorgeous. So. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, just that uh, page thirty-eight. I've never been one who's felt like like collecting original art pages, but. That page 38, that first one from this chapter with the guys outside, like the detail on that bar and everything, and them just standing there, and Batman slowly coming out of the water. This is a page that I would like to have if I could ever find it for a decent price, and that will, I'm sure that will never happen. But no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm not even going to like dream about that, but just say in another world, that would be a great page to have. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay, then Ken Stacy or Stacy, we get... Batman rescuing Catwoman and the others. Uh, I, I like this. I like Ken Stacy's stuff. Um, he drew the Earth to Robin Who's Who page, and I've always liked that one. But uh, he didn't do a lot of Batman. He did. I think he did some. You know, he did some covers and stuff for DC here and there. And and I've seen some a Batman painting he did for uh, that uh, art collector Todd Rice, who they named Obsidian after. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Comic art collector. He's a guy that does the 3D like comic dioramas. Like he'll take a cover and and like make multiple layers of it to where it looks like it's a like a 3D type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had uh, it was like an Amazing Heroes issue or something that had his art collection. There was some really cool Ken Stacy Batman and Joker paintings he did uh, for for Todd Rice and mm-hmm. and I, I I think it's sharp. I, the only thing that always kind of bugged me about his Batman is you can see his ears under his cowl. And yeah. it's always, that's Jim Lee does that too, though. So it's just, it's kind of always been a pet peeve of, it's like, no, his cow's thick enough that you can't see his ears. <laughs> but that's, that's an odd little, you know, nitpick. But uh, I think it's funny that the pre-crisis Batman was smarter than his post-crisis counterpart because he didn't try to beat the superhuman brute with his fist when Croc got a hold of him. You know, he just gassed him. You know? Yeah, exactly. It, it, 
you know, he didn't, there wasn't any kind of macho, I've got to take you down, you know, with my bare hands, you know, it was just like, no, I got to get out of here. You know, Jason's put a lot of faith in me. I got to beat this guy. He thought things through, you know, and, and he took him out, which, you know, you can make, definitely make a point that the pre-crisis Batman is a lot more uh, well-rounded and, and uh, less obsessed and therefore clear thinking characters. So. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> And again, I like this version of Croc. I wish this was still the version that we've been told. Uh, On page 43, there is a coloring error uh, on the third panel when it's actually Batman tapping on Scarecrow's shoulder so that he can say boo and, like, punch him in the face. But it's colored to make it look like that's Scarecrow's hand tapping his own shoulder. So... Oh, I never even noticed that before. I, I I never picked up that that's what was going on. Yeah, I mean, it sort of so, looks like it's it sort of looks like a close up of Scarecrow like holding his hand up, but it, like he's that should be Batman's hand popping out of the tree out of the like leaves and saying like mm-hmm. tapping him on the shoulder to draw his attention. So the glove should yeah, be blue. You're right. Once we get to uh, the heroes storming the police station to rescue everybody, once we get onto the roof. Um, yeah, Penguin and Mad Hatter do try to kill the Joker. Yes. <laughs> like, they open fire. Penguin's got a Tommy gun shooting at the Joker. Yeah, where's his umbrella? Yeah, yeah, good point. But like, He's like, no, I'm not wasting time with that. I'm getting a machine gun. And they try to gun the Joker down, and, it, and then the Joker gasses them with laughing gas. Like, that could be fatal. This could be the death of these characters since we're going into a new continuity. Like, this, by rights, could have been the end of Penguin and Mad Hatter. They could have died from laughing gas for all we know. Right, and, you know, it kind of makes you wonder... Since Dagger obviously was just so <laughs> superfluous, why they didn't have the Joker just bump him off here? You know, sure, yes. I mean, no, nobody would have cared, and it would have, you know, been another notch in the Joker's belt, you know, so, so to speak. Right. So, you know, I, it, it it made me think because you don't want to you don't want to kill off Deadshot because he's going to be a movie star later. So, you know, <laughs> much much later, yes, much much much. Yeah, they much, saw much that later. one coming. <laughs> Yeah, they saw they they just knew Will Smith would one day play Deadshot. Uh, <laughs> the Fresh Prince hadn't even come out yet. Uh, but yeah, I, I like this chapter. I like uh, I like Rick Leonardi's art usually anyway. But Carl Kiesel is just one of my favorite inkers. Period, and he adds such a nice crisp line. He kind of reigns in Leonardi's cartooniness well. And uh, it, it, it creates a really nice synthesis. I, I, I would have liked to have seen this team. I love their Joker. Yeah, I think I the joke's too. great. Well, and I, I, uh, I think it would have been great to see elsewhere. I'll come back to that. Um, first off, like nice, <laughs> nice job giving Killer Moth one last moment to shine. Yeah. Like the fact that he, he thought at least he killed Batman was you know, nice, nice, nice aiming, nice shot. Yeah. Um, I, I really like their Joker. Up until the last page on their chapter, on page 51, there's something about on these on the uh, the top panels, like the way they draw Batman and Joker. To me, it feels like these are characters wearing Batman and Joker masks. It just feels like there's mm. like one too many lines around the faces or something. Mm, and, I can see that. And I don't know, but like the rest of the panels, like the other pages and everything, like the first shots uh, of the Joker on page 49, I love that. But when it's him on 51. There, there feels like an extra part of skin or something that doesn't belong, or I don't know. There's, it's weird, but but yeah, yeah the, I can see that. The the motion, like the the energy that they give to these, again, like these are this is early in Rick Leonardi's career, but he was certainly going to step up and be a big, you know, kind of a, I don't know if powerhouse is the right term, but he, I mean, he had a a pretty decent career in the '90s, so. Yeah, Spider-Man 2099 yeah, jumps yeah. out at me. Yeah. yeah. So you could see where these guys were going. 
I think it's interesting that they had Batman double cross the Joker. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of, you know, because I mean, you know, we, <laughs> this isn't Bob Haney's Batman who, who works with the Joker in the Brave and the Bold comic. <laughs> After he says, I'll hunt you down and kill you like the dog you are. And then he teams up with him, you know. Right. <laughs> Zany Haney. And finally, the Brian Ballin chapters. Yeah. Sorry. The art in this chapter is just horrible. I'm sorry. It's off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, it's just freaking gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, the image, and it's like sunrise or something, and Batman planting the charges outside the windmill. And this is where, you know, going back to that first title page, it's like. Why is Batman in front of a windmill? What the hell is this windmill? Why did Rachel Ghoul pick a windmill as his base of operations? What, the imagery, the iconography of this has nothing to do with Batman. But for this story, it does, because the windmill is just an endless circle that goes round and round and round. And mm. that's what Mensch is describing with Batman's war on crime here, is that these, yeah. he puts these guys in jail. They're going to get out again, and it's never going to stop. And that's why it's like he doesn't like celebrating these anniversaries of just another year of doing the same thing. And we'll get to that when we get to sort of the epilogue with just like the, the stalactite knocking out the candles. It's because there's no... There's no, like, renewal of this. It just keeps going, and it never stops. So. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. So way to, uh, way to find subtext, man. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, oh, this is kind of like the end of a Frankenstein movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, too. Ca- you know, caves in, you know. <laughs> that, too. That, too. Uh, yeah, this uh, it, it's kind of interesting because um, I, I'll, I'll confess something here. I was insanely jealous that you got the ball and drawn Batman Green Arrow Black Canary chapter of JLA number 200 <laughs> when Robin Shag did Fire and Water number episode number 100. Because, uh, you know, we, we got the Wonder Woman Zatanna chapter. And you because... know what? I would have just as easily jumped to that one. <laughs> so we, <laughs> I've thought about that before. I was like, you know, if I'd never started a Black Canary blog, man, I wouldn't have been on that episode. But then I kind of thought, I was like, <laughs> well, if I hadn't picked Black Canary, I probably would have picked Zatanna. And then I still would have been on it. It's just like we would, Robin Shag would have picked you and Cindy for the other chapter. We just would have flipped. Right, right. I mean, they picked they picked Cindy because it was like the one you know woman on woman fight, and I just got basically you know tagged along on that one, which is fine. But I just I, I just always loved that chapter, and that's the first time I remember seeing Brian Ballin, you know, on that. Well, actually, I think I picked this comic. No, I picked this comic up first okay. uh, because I didn't get JLA number two hundred for years. So, but this is. You know, maybe other than like, I don't, well, this was probably before the Who's Who entry for Two Face came out, and he he drew Two Face in the first Who's Who. But the, this was probably my introduction to to Balland and on Batman, and and more than likely this was done around the same time he was working on the Killing Joke because I know it took him forever. Yeah, to, yeah. yeah. He was probably he was probably working on both at the same time. And yeah, what can you say? The pages, the level of detail, Rachel Gould like holding his broken up hand after he punches a wall. <laughs> oh, geez, it's that's scary. I mean, it's, he's he's literally frightening looking. Yeah. I mean, it's and and when he comes up out of the pit and his the veins yes. and his and muscles in his neck are all. I mean, it's like, gah. <laughs> and, and Batman just you know just looks great. Let, let me ask you this: Do you? There's that one panel where Rach brings his arm down on Batman's head and he bends Batman's ear. It, it, you hear a crack. Do you think Rache broke his own arm? I do think so, yeah. Was, 
I think he, yeah, I think he broke too. his arm, but also, I mean, gave Batman a massive concussion. I mean, that's kind of yes. clear because Batman's like down in the next panel. But yeah, I think that's supposed to be the, him breaking his arm on Batman's head. Because he picks up the sword with his left hand and his mm-hmm. right arm just hanging down just in the next dang. in the next panel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I always kind of thought too. So it's, I mean, for being for being a relatively short fight. I mean, compared to uh, you think this is like the final boss level. This is Batman's ultimate challenge. He's fighting an old, wet, naked man. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but for being like this fight, it's a savage, brutal fight in just a couple of pages. Yeah, I mean, it do, you don't feel short changed, even though it is uh, short. I yeah, mean, yeah. It, 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 you know, it's just the the storytelling, the art, and and even the dialogue is. You know, it's it's uh, it just all goes together and, and makes it feel like, OK, this is it. This is the big moment. And uh, uh, do you do let me ask you a question here. Do we do you think that Batman knew he was throwing race into the pit and that that might kill him? Or what What do we think here? Um, I think there was a level of desperation that, yes, he was basically throwing racial go back into the pit to end the fight. And then having to realize that, yeah, I just – I probably killed this guy. And I think this was very much meant to be the death of Rachel Ghoul. Now, of course, he would come back yeah. um, again and again. But yeah, I think he probably knew that he was – yeah, he he probably I, – I don't think he was – this wasn't a for like this would be like a crime of self defense. This was killing in self defense and very much, but right, um, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, and this and is it's certain, not the first time he's done a, that. Yeah, this is certainly a death for Rachel Ghoul that feels to me a lot cleaner than I don't have to save you because yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely you know, and in the the previous encounter that they mentioned was the the Batman Annual with uh, that Mike Barr and Trevor Von Eden yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. And he's basically disintegrated in outer space, but apparently he really wasn't, uh, because that was a pretty final <laughs> inspirational goal. And I'm not. I look how they don't really go into how he made it back. You know, they just like well. Lazarus pit didn't really work. I had to have physicians help me, blah, blah, blah. What they do, like scoop you up in a dustbin and <laughs> – I mean, geez. <laughs> but then, yeah, this was this was nice. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Did Son of the Demon I, – I should actually be looking at my notes. Did Son of the Demon come out in 87 or 88? It did come out in 87. So Son of the Demon yeah, I think came so. – now, I mean, people have argued how how much Son of the Demon was in continuity almost as soon as it came out. And, and certainly Grant Morrison has put it back in continuity, but who knows. Right. But yeah, that came out about a little bit more than a year after this. Mm-hmm. That was probably the next time he showed up. Right. So. Yeah, like after the fight is over, when they bring them all down to the Batcave, it's nice that they're all blindfolded, including Alfred, who's, you know, pretending like he's never been down there before. And then Batman shows up bare-chested with, like, his chest wrapped, like his like his ribs are probably cracked and everything. Still wearing the cape right. and cowl, though. I was like, that's a classy look, Batman. <laughs> Vic, Vicky Vale was probably like, ooh, Batman has a superfluous third nipple, just like Bruce Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> What a crazy coincidence. Actually, somebody should cosplay this version of Batman. Yeah, they should. <laughs> Go around with the cowl. And the, well, at least, you know, in, in most stories, when he's got, he's all, you know, Batman's had more cracked ribs than, right. I don't know, a barbecue joint, you know? I mean, it's so, he normally gets his ribs wrapped 
mm-hmm. over his costume. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's over his shirt, you know, usually. It's like, how's that going to work, you know? And I'm, I guess if it, they're just binding it okay, maybe. But, yeah, this time he's he's definitely shirtless. I mean, you've got – you see chest hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love the look that Ballin gives him on his face. It's just like Batman's just like, I'm not having this. It's like, who the hell – I'm going to kill this kid. You know, it's like – Whose idea was this? Don't bring people into the Batcave. Don't celebrate my anniversary. Come on. (laughs) You don't have to leave, but I'm not going to talk to any of you. I'm just going to stand there and make you feel uncomfortable until you go home. Get your cake and get out. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Uh, You know, you get the giant stalactite, drops down. Happy birthday. <laughs> it's a nice image. Uh, like the last page, we do get like this one sort of kind of feel like an obtrusive panel of just all the villains that are still out there, um, which to me only serves to remind me that Two-Face, as popular as Two-Face is, he wasn't part of this crew. Like, why wasn't he with all the other big guns in this one? But the sort of fading image of just Batman in the glow of the light coming out of the cave with all of the bats kind of like flying away. And he, his final line, hello again, beware forever. I don't know what that means, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, I've always kind of puzzled that, too. It's like it's something that I can't really see. It's a little too poetic and flowery for Batman to actually say, but we'll, we'll forgive him because yeah. it's, you know, the, the final Earth One Batman story. I, I think Two-Face, I think Minch had just used him. He was the last big rogue that Minch had used in Batman and Detective. So I think that's probably why he got to sit this one out because he had just done a storyline with him. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was probably like, well, he did literally, I mean, to, to emphasize the fact that Batman, he would just put him in jail and now he's or Arkham and now he's back out again. So... <laughs> And then, as I mentioned at the top, after the story is over, we get four pinups. The first one is by Mike Grell. The second one is by Mike Kaluta. The third one by Bernie Wrightson. And the fourth one is by Steve Rude. What do you think of these pinups? Oh, I like all of them. They're great. The the Mike Kaluta one is pretty strange. I mean, it's like Batman and a bunch of white demons from hell or something. Yeah, that's that's how he signed it. It's like Batman goes to has gone to hell or something with Oh yeah, that's yeah. right. He does say that. Yeah, Batman has gone to hell. Yeah. So I mean was that his statement on the way the comics were going or because <laughs> <laughs> you know he did a lot of Batman right. specifically covers in the in the seventies. Uh not a whole lot of interior but and Mike Grell did Batman interiors for a while there in the seventies <clears throat> and writes and didn't do a whole lot of Batman, but he did that famous issue of Swamp Thing with, right. with Batman. And he will do quite a bit of Batman here during the post-crisis era, which yep. we'll get to. Yep. And Steve Rude had probably – this is one of his first DC works uh, other than maybe a Who's Who page. I know he did Blue Beetle in early Who's mm-hmm. Who. He will also work on Batman during this period in a, in a miniseries. So. I love that Steve Rude one so much. That's a mm-hmm. that's such a good image. The Bernie Wrightson one is disappointing, and I I love Wrightson especially. I've I've lately just really immersed myself in a lot of his work, and it's so good. But this one, it's a boring image. It, it doesn't look like it put that much time or thought into it. Yeah, it's like a con sketch he inked and yeah. turned in as a pinup or something. Yeah. <laughs> I really like the Mike Grell one. I like the way it looks and everything. I just feel like Batman is sort of too shunted off to the corner and the focus is more on the gargoyle. But mm-hmm. other than that, I mean, it's it looks great. I, I would like to see more like that. It makes me wish, hey, I wish Mike Grell would have done some of the interiors for this issue. But yeah, I, I think that Steve Rude one is, is kind of stands out above all of them. It's just a great way to end the book. 
So. Yeah, and he's kind of got you know Batman's almost smirking a little bit, <laughs> like, and he's just caught these these guys. He's uh, it reminds me of the first Robin story because he's on the skeleton of a building, yeah, you know, and that's what yeah. that always reminds me of. Yeah. <laughs> so it's cool. As I mentioned also before, uh, the inside front cover and the inside back cover of this issue are printed a foreword by Stephen King called Why I Chose Batman. Uh, and he basically, he talks about like childhood memories and everything growing up. And he talks about how, you know, one of the things kids talk about when they're thinking about comics is that universal question of who's better, Superman or Batman. And he does make the distinction, which is very clear and very important, that he never had a problem with Superman, that he liked Superman. And he thinks it's important that Superman remain the classical good guy because that's something that kids need. But he then does kind of explain that he always thought it was, like Superman's stories were a little bit unfair, that, that Superman was just a little bit too powered and kind of overmatched his, his enemies. He actually, I, I think King has a line in this that I really like where he said, like, doing good should always be harder than doing bad. And that mm-hmm. was what he liked about Batman because Batman, yes, Batman was rich. Yes, Batman was smart. Yes, Batman was strong. But he was still very much a human and put up against the odds that we see in this story where he's going up against a dozen villains. You know, this is, this is an impossible, you know, obstacle course. Uh, and he still manages to pull it out. So I, I think it's this getting Stephen King was was huge. I mean, you know, you get he, of course he's still a, a big author now, but back in the eighties, no one was bigger than Stephen King. I think Hollywood would have adapted his grocery list if he let him. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it, it, and I'm surprised he didn't try to adapt this. You know, it's everything that he wrote became a movie or a miniseries or something, and and. Uh, I, I will say though, and I do appreciate he, he he is adamant that he still likes Superman, and he's you know he's not he's not down in Superman. But you know Stephen King just said I picked Batman over Superman the month before the Dark Knight number four came out. These were two serious blows to Superman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one right after another, and you know, and I know a lot of Superman fans point to the Dark Knight depiction of Superman really doing a lot of damage and I'm one of them. Like my, of them too. And I, I've said that before, like my first reading experience with Superman was in the dark Knight returns. And it made me think that Superman was just a tool of the government and he wasn't cool. So I had yeah. that bias against Superman for years uh, mm-hmm. And and it was a while before I kind of turned around, and now Superman is one of my favorites. I do like the character. He's easily in my top five DC heroes, which is probably top five all heroes, but Batman is still my number one. And for some of the reasons that, that King outlines, some of it is just the, the first experience. I like the sinister side of Batman, that he does kind of embrace the shadows and embrace the darkness, that he, he operates, that he looks like what you would think of like a, a bad guy would look like sort of in, in classical sort of literary terms. He, he dresses mm-hmm. as the demon, but yeah, they just, yeah, I, I like him. I like the way he fights, the way he thinks it's, he's always been my favorite. Me too. So that is what uh, we've got for this very first episode. And that's some of what you're going to look forward to in episodes going forward. Where we go next from here is Batman issue 401 and Detective Comics 568. These uh, were both on sale in the month of August 1986, and these were tie-ins to the Legends event, and that fits them squarely in the post-crisis era. So this is definitely a new version of Batman, although... As Chris pointed out before when we were talking, there's still a little bit of a sliding scale of where exactly Batman's post-crisis history picks up. Because we're not going to say 
right? It's it's not quite as definite as Man of Steel was for Superman. So. No, you're still going to see remnants of this continuity mm-hmm. sneaking into uh, upcoming storylines, and and honestly storylines from the same creative teams will then change some of the backstory. And so it's, it's, we're, we're in a very amorphous time with what's going on with backstories and continuity. So, uh, we'll, and we will point all that out as we go along. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to actually trying to make sense of some of this and being able to point out where it's like, okay, well they're establishing this. And in two months from now, that is not going to make sense. That is not going to fit the continuity <laughs> or exactly. hey, this thing really just flies in the face of what was going on in the other book that came out the same month and, and looking at some of those inconsistencies. I think that's going to be one of the fun parts of this uh, podcast going forward. And certainly the ever-evolving Batmobile design, the ever-evolving Catwoman costumes, the look of Robin, the behaviors. This yeah. is fun. Like As I mentioned, this is a podcast that has been, we have been developing and just kind of sitting on for a year. And I am just thrilled that we're finally able to tackle this. I'm really excited where we go from here. What about you? Are you pumped for this? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm 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 stoked. I'm all I'm all giddy. I'm ready to talk. I'm even ready to talk Max Allen Collins. <laughs> <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> say that now. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> How long is that gonna last? <laughs> People talking and they're saying that you're leaving. You're so unhappy with the way that you've been living. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
I was going to make a, a comment or something like, you know, like even if we're still doing the show five years from now, you're still going to be harping on the, the Batman firing Dick Grayson part. That's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to. Yeah, that's, the yeah. Point that's never going to go away. <laughs> nope. The only the only good thing that gave us was the old wounds episode of uh, of the animated series. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, at least Matt, at least Dick got to slug him one, you know, <laughs> just imagine when we actually get to that issue. It's just going to be like this. <laughs> that, that'll be your own personal, like you know, Vietnam getting through that one. Oh, yeah, it will. It's, it's yeah, it's and then and then the issue four sixteen will kind of help the Nightwing uh, Jason issue is you know patches things up a little bit. So right. yeah, it's a it's a slow process.